Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Chris Baggett, a regenerative farmer and direct marketer who did what many would consider to be an unforgivable sin and turned productive cropland in Indiana into a perennial pasture-based farm. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to hearing his story. That's something we're trying to do here so I can understand and appreciate that that change. But uh, Chris, thanks so much for taking some time out of your, your day and joining me here and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a huge honor for a relative uh, newcomer like myself to to be on on Herd Quitter. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't be too honored. It's nothing nothing special, but it is what is special is you say a relative newcomer, and I think that's one of the coolest things about you is what you've accomplished in a relatively short period of time. I was glancing at your website, and you only started this business and started in agriculture not much more than 10 years or 13 years ago. So I want to hear all about that story. But before we do that, maybe just tell me a little bit about who you are, a little bit about what you do, and then we'll dive back into the, the history of, of your operation. Sure. Um, my name's Chris Baggett. Our farm is called Tyner Pond Farm. Uh, we're in roughly Greenfield, Indiana. Uh, we now have six farms they're not contiguous, but they're all about a mile apart, all somewhere in the 100 to 120 acre range. Nice. Um, basically, we started with 75 acres back, as you said, in 2010. Um, and, you know, just as the business has grown and we've been able to acquire more land. Um, and, and to your point, we basically take corn and soybean farmland and convert it into, into productive pasture, multi-species, regenerative the whole thing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. What, uh, what got you or made you decide that you ever wanted to do this? Or, and I guess I should even ask before we get into why you decided to do this, what did you do before getting into farming? Primarily I've been in, in, uh, in software entrepreneurship, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I got very, very fortunate in 2000. Um, I uh, started a company with my brother-in-law called exact target. That was, a uh, focused on digital marketing. And, and in those days, digital marketing meant email marketing. We were very, very, very early pioneers to that. Um, exact target was, uh, um, you know, an overnight 12 year overnight sensation. Um, we were able to actually go public wow. and, um, and later we were acquired by salesforce.com. I rolled out another software company called compendium software, um, that was relatively quickly acquired by Oracle. I've lived in Greenfield. I do live in Greenfield. Um, been here 30 some years. Uh, you know, it's a rural town close to Indianapolis, but still a small town, which has been great. And stumbled across the omnivores dilemma probably mm -hmm. in 2006 or seven. Um, like a lot of folks, you know, I would drive around and, you know, kind of marvel at the corn this year, like, hey, the corn looks good, you know, and then you read that book and you can't look at it the same way again. And, yeah. um, and of course, the rabbit hole that he opened was the Joel Salatin, um, you know, which turned out Joel had written You Can Farm and Grass-Fed Beef and Chicken Tractor and, yeah. you know, and, and um, so really started studying all that. 
And, um, you know, that's kind of how it started. You know, we had the acquisition. So we had this great good fortune. um, And the question was what's what to do next and and how do we give back? Um, You know, and a lot of people look at philanthropy and um, I'm much more of a control freak and, you know, and, you know, just thought this regenerative agriculture it's kind of my responsibility. Like, let's show what can be done. Yeah. Um, let's show how we can heal this land and create a better environment, make food for people. You know, there was a great paper written back around 2008 or nine or 10 that it was uh, by a person, Dr. Ken Meter out of the University of Wisconsin. And it's called Who's Your Farmer with an H, H-O-O-S-I-E-R. And it was basically, it was all about the food system and how that farmers don't make food and mm-hmm. and people, you know, the crops aren't food that it's all processed and you know you know but the striking point was that indiana ate 17.9 billion dollars worth of food back then um and 97 percent of that was imported like we think we're this agricultural state but we don't make any food and um and that really really struck me and motivated me to 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 get into the food business from an agricultural standpoint yeah well Man, so many questions off of just that few minutes I want to jump into. Oh, I should have been, I, I should be keeping notes better because there's a lot of different things I want to jump into. And I want to talk about uh, specifically your decision to get into both production as well as food, because you could just see the business of, you know, getting into the food marketing business, but you chose to also produce, which is very different than a tech startup. It's a very heavy capital intensive land based app. So I want to talk about that at some point. Don't let me forget to go there. Um, But if you don't mind, I don't know that I've ever had anybody who has kind of, I don't know if you would consider yourself a tech startup kind of background experience, you know, creating a business. It's a very different, probably business model than anyone than anything I have uh, experienced talking to or anything. And I'm just kind of curious more about that, what you learned in that, what, what kind of, uh, I don't know how, how, what do you think of that career field? What it, it, just tell me a little more about that and what you maybe learned, I guess, through the years. Well, again, we do treat it like a startup, right? You know, we work from the, the problem mm-hmm. and, and, and the consumer, right. And how do you solve the consumer's problem? Right. Sure. And, and the other general, you know, it's an interesting thing about this business, but it's, it's, you know, your consumers run this diverse gamut of extreme environmentalist to extreme, for lack of a better word, with all due respect, preference, right? You know, people who are worried about sure. globalization, people who are worried about drugs in their food or empowering giant corporations or, you mm-hmm. know, and all the way to people who are concerned about climate change and global warming and, and you know, animal welfare and, you know, sea turtles in Florida. And, you know, and yeah. it's just interesting that grass-fed beef is kind of the solution to, to all of it, right? Yeah. You know, we're big holistic managers. Um, we've hugely influenced by Alan Savory. My wife has been there three times to Africa. I've been mm-hmm. twice. Um, you know, we've seen it. Um, and and so from an entrepreneur, it really seemed like, wow, this is a problem that needs to be solved. There is there is a, a huge demand for it. Um, I'm a big fan of Chris Anderson's. Um, Chris Anderson invented the... Uh, um, Ted Talk. He's founder of Ted, sure. but um, but also he wrote a book back in the mid two thousand and five two thousand and ten range uh, called the Long Tail, and in the Long Tail he describes this um, 
the idea of the internet being, you know, now I have unlimited choice, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, his primary example is, you know, my music used to be curated for me, right? If it wasn't played on the radio, I was never going to hear it. Mm -hmm. And so I was limited to, you know, 5,000 songs, right? If you go sure. into, you know, yeah. Virgin Megastore, they sold you 5,000 songs, right? That was the limit. Yeah. When music went online, this long tail said, now I can buy 5 million songs, right? And there's all this choice for the consumer. Mm. But the other part of that, if you think about the top of the long tail as the song, the bottom of the long tail is the musician, right? So if you think back 20 years ago, if you were a musician, you were either going to be somebody who got played on the radio or you're playing at a holiday inn and weddings and things like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. But what the long tail empowered were tens of thousands of small business bands. Right. Because there are super obscure people. Um, you know, this kid right now, who's uh, I can't think of his name, Oliver, somebody yes, from Richmond from Richmond. It. Right. Yes. Exactly. Right. That. And this, Blew up I mean, overnight. I heard it. I heard it like two weeks ago yeah. and he's, I'm sure well over a hundred thousand followers. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a business right in mm -hmm. that music, and yeah. because the consumer now gets this song I never would have heard, and the musician gets a way to make a living at a much smaller level than Taylor Swift, but still a very yes. good living. Yeah, the same thing is happening with food, right? Used to be the grocery store was the curator of my food. If I didn't make it into the grocery store, hmm. you know, I'm selling sides somewhere on the side yeah. of the road, you know, yeah. corn out of the back of a pickup truck. Yeah. Um, but now with the internet and this long tail, now I can, the consumer has all this choice. I don't need Kroger to, or Walmart to curate what kind of meat I eat. Um, but it also empowers all these small businesses, mm. you know, to match up with them. So this, this unbelievable opportunity we have with the internet to sell directly to consumers, it's just something that wasn't possible 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I know we've been trying to move our business model. We say like to compete with the convenience of Amazon, they've kind of set the bar and the standard for what people expect out of their convenience and stuff. And to think that we could is kind of crazy, but the technology that's out there has almost allowed us to do that. Now we kind of can, it might not be at the same cost, you know, cost level, but doesn't seem like the people who are supporting us maybe are price shoppers anyway. Well, and that's the thing. You've got to, you've got to talk to your audience, you know, where they are. And mm -hmm. just like I described a few minutes ago, you know, I can name 15 categories of people, you know, personas in marketing speak yeah. who would be interested in my product. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not the price buyer, but there yeah. are a million other reasons yeah. why people will buy this or at least 15 yeah. <laughs> that I've identified <laughs> yeah. of why yeah. people will buy, you know, locally sourced grass fed meat. Um, yeah you know, with no antibiotics and, you know, whatever mm -hmm. box people want to check. Um, and that's the part of the marketing that, that you've got to drive towards. Mm -hmm. Now, the other advantage I have, which I, you know, I want to be transparent about is I am 50 miles from 3 million people, Yeah, um, being a, outside of Indianapolis, you know, we're kind of a donut County. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I, I, I deliver, we don't really ship. We're just beginning to dip our toe in the water with shipping, but, 99% of our businesses is delivery on routes. People order, yeah. we download a list, the list is in order of route, we put it in order and, you know, we head out in a van and drop it off at people's houses. So, 
Sure. Um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, if you're in the middle of Wyoming, you know, that's, that may not be the same opportunity that we have. Yeah. Yeah. But you're in Minneapolis area somewhere, right? Yes. I'm just about the same kind of distance, about an hour from Minneapolis, which also there's a 20 mile radius of our freezer space in Edina is like a 3.2 million people or something as well, which similar opportunity. But then I've had people on like Jill Winger not too long ago, who's in the middle of, I forget what state out West somewhere, Wyoming, I think middle of nowhere and she has to do all shipping because the local market just isn't you know the, the local market that is there almost everybody has a neighbor cousin family member who's running their own ranch and they get their beef from them anyway so it's different right, right but but technology has allowed them to do that and compete again with like the conveniences that everybody expects today which i just think sure. is remarkable um i'm curious just again kind of your perspective coming from a tech company to this more land and resource-based company uh what are your perspectives on like the scalability. I mean, you know, you're kind of scale limited, limited in your scalability based on what you can produce with your own labor with, you know, within your region with land you can access versus a tech company, which is almost unlimited scalability. If you're, uh, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the gross margins are quite different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I suppose. (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. What kind of gross margin is typical for like some sort of a tech company? I, I, well, software as a service, a SaaS company, yeah. you know, you're really looking for like a 90% gross margin, right? Mm-hmm. Like the incremental cost of selling yeah. another instant of MailChimp is zero, yeah. um, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's what makes them such great businesses and yeah. why <laughs> investors love them so much, you know. Mm-hmm. In our business, you know, we're, we're, we're striving to have a gross margin somewhere around 50%. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we... We are, you know, this gets to the calf conversation I was saying, you know, about kid, but, you know, we're, we are vertically integrated with the exception of we have to buy calves. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's something I worry a great deal about because it's the one aspect of our business that I have no control over. Yeah. Um, but I can control price. So if my calf price is inflated, you know, I can, like a normal business, pass that on to the consumer. Yeah. Um, we try not to, and we try and find efficiencies at, you know, at scale, you know, again, one of the great things about this, you know, holistic managed grazing or whatever term you want to use, um, is it, it just really works. Yeah. Like it yeah. massively increases the productivity. Yeah. We're running a single herd right now of around 350, mm. um, steers, um, on ground that would barely support 70 three years ago um you know just the the the, like this works right this Mm -hmm. this really really works it makes more forage it makes more food for the animals so you Mm -hmm. can stock more animals yeah um, on the same ground and i love that you know what kit said is you know you know if you're in the corn business you're thinking about yield right Mm -hmm. what is my yield per acre not what's the weight of the cow what's my yield (laughs) per acre yeah. And that's spot on to how we think is like, how mm-hmm. do I increase the yield per acre yeah. of, of, of meat, of, you know, of, yeah. you know, my stocking density. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that it, people don't think about it that way and stuff, but we think, I mean, I don't know. I was just thinking about this earlier today when I was actually driving home, I moved some cattle before I came out here and I was thinking about that again. It was just like, yes, this, what is our limiting factor? Our, our limiting factor is our land base. You can go out, you can get more cattle, you can go out and get more whatever, but it's not easy to access access more land. We have to somehow manage to 
utilize fully our land base. That's our limiting factor. And so we got to think about maximizing the production on that. And the production per cow just is totally irrelevant. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, yeah. But then, you know, again, in the holistic framework, you know, you have to go all the way back to antibiotics, right? Is a simple one, right? Okay. If I use antibiotics, you know, maybe I prevent disease in one animal, but I can also rotate my animals four times a day and keep them away from disease. Secondly, mm -hmm. you know, that manure is going to contain that antibiotic. My productivity is dependent on microbiological activity. Like, like I can't have the, the crop, which is our forage productivity with manure full of antibiotics dropping into my field. Like it's, it's counterproductive to me. Um, you know, so it's, it's, and the thought that it all is so connected, like holistic is you know, why the holistic is so important is because I feel like a lot of people might say it's like, yeah, that makes sense. I could move more often and then, you know, reduce my need for antibiotics, but it's, that's a lot of work. It'd be easier to just run them through the shed once or through the facility once and, and treat them for something or whatever. But in, in its, in and of itself, if it was a move twice a day or B run them through a shoot once, maybe that would make sense. But also moving them twice a day has this other abundance of countless advantages that compound on each other too. There's so many interconnected advantages right. that come with I, this management. I need that biology. I need yeah. those dung beetles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I'm shooting my cattle with things that doesn't <laughs> help my, bio, you know, my soil, um, then that hurts my productivity. It hurts the amount of forage and the stocking density and, and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's, uh, it can be, it's, I think it's probably common to have almost a short sighted view of our management and think where what's easier today, not think about what, how doing something that's easier today is going to impact our long-term productivity or something, or taking a step today that's more work is going to improve our long-term productivity and whatnot. And this is the core tenet of Alan Savory and holistic management, right? You have two choices, right? You can look at the whole or you can reductive, right? Reductively solve the problem. I have a sick cow, give it a shot. That's reductive. Holistic is like, why is it sick in the first place? And what am I really trying? You know, whatever, EEC, right? What, you know, with the environment, the uh, economy and the community, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, how does what I do affect all of that? Yeah. Your yeah. context. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, let's, uh, let's jump back now. <laughs> As I got a fun kind of a tangent there. I, I loved it. I think that's great. It may be I, me. That's no, you have a great understanding of holistic management too. That is, is something I don't think I talk about enough probably here. So I appreciate you bringing that. And I hope we can, I, I want to jump back into more of your story so that the conversation we're having has context in, in your, within your story so that people, I guess, are understanding what these things are looking like in practice on your farm. So, uh, Talk to me a little bit more about, or I guess let's just go to the start then. Uh, you at some point decided that, you know, I want to make a difference and I don't just want to give money to a cause. I don't just, I don't even just want to, what a lot of people I talked about, big, uh, talk about with a lot of people is the biggest thing that they can do to help make a change in the food system is to buy the food that they believe in. But you took it a step further and said, well, a couple steps further, you said, I'm not only going to buy it, I'm going to produce it. And I'm not only going to produce it for myself, but I'm going to produce it for my community. Uh, and, and that's a pretty cool mindset and powerful decision. Uh, I guess, take me from there and in, in your steps uh, that you started to actually go down that path. 
Well, I mean, it all came together like a lot of things with a, a bunch of separate things, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you drive through rural America and you see these empty towns and you look at these facades that are kind of fancy, you know, and you have these bad buildings that you look up and you're like, wow, <laughs> this is a nice building actually. And it says bank and hardware. And, you know, there used to be productivity here, like prosperity, you know, how did, how did, what happened? Mm-hmm. And well, the deindustrialization and the deagriculturalization of America, you know, so, you know, that became a point like, okay, how do we actually help these small communities? Right. And community wealth is created by keeping dollars circulating within your community. When you send your dollar off to buy grass-fed beef from Australia, you know, that's not helping your community. And, um, you know, people talk about feeding the world. And I'm just always like, man, you're not feeding yourself. And you're not feeding your community or your family. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Joel says this way more eloquently than I do. But, you know, like, yeah. start there. Um, yeah. you know, somebody, Thomas Massey, and I don't know him. I know he's a politician from Kentucky. But. You know, he had this statement I heard the other day called localist minded environmentalism. And I thought, man, that checks so many boxes, Hmm. Um, you know. And so that's that's kind of how we approached it. And, you know, this is what we can do. Um, So we bought a farm and uh, run down, spend a year kind of rebuilding it and getting it organized. We put it in our own processing thing. We made a ton of mistakes. Uh, my you wife always says that processing facility we we did yeah we really wanted to be right. as vertically integrated as right possible. we don't we wow. don't we don't use it anywhere oh, well okay. again i think you know there's an old saying you know how do you make a small fortune you know, start, start with a large fortune in a farm yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah but um yeah no we went down a lot of wrong paths you know my poor wife always says it's it's just not good to be a first generation animal on one of chris's farms you know, but, <laughs> um, you know yeah. So we learned a lot of things the hard way. And one of the things that I think helps a little bit um, coming at this from the outside is, you know, you listen enough from experienced people, but you're also able to question a lot of things, you know, mm-hmm. just because it's always been done. Um, you know, I first time we castrated pigs and I watched a bunch of YouTubes. I saw a process I like, but I was still nervous about it. Brought in our vet's father who's you know been castrating pigs for 50 years and a great guy terrific Mm -hmm. and you know he's holding this thing up and it's like screaming and it's very stressful and i'm like you know i saw this on youtube where you flip the legs over backwards snip snip pull the piglet doesn't make a noise the mom doesn't know anything he was like oh my gosh i've been doing this for 50 years you know i've never seen anything like that in my life so being able to approach things with with fresh eyes yeah and and open mind you know has really been helpful to us yeah so, so when you bought this farm, I, that's one of my favorite pieces of almost like these first generation stories is like the first farm. Uh, talk about your decision making, why you picked this farm. What were the uh, maybe I don't know how much you're willing to share on like financing the farm and the and like in your mindset on the financials of all of this. You're going into a pretty capital intensive business. Um, you know, talk about your mindset around that. Was there fear? Uh, was there excitement? Um, and then that, yeah, how you kind of started making the change on that first farm. Well, I, I had a friend um, named Duffy Farrell and Duffy um, was like a team roper and, um, you know, so animal ish, but not really farm animals. And we started talking about this and 
Duffy had been a um, pressman for our local newspaper, like only work nights. Um, and so we just started sharing these ideas. He read the book and, um, and this farm um, was kind of out in a rural area by us. And what was remarkable about it is it still had trees. It like on the road, it still had these giant maple trees. So there was like shade there. Um, and one day it went up for sale and it was really really kind of run down. Um, the house was sort of halfway remodeled and unsalvageable buildings everywhere. Um, just not very attractive looking. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of made an offer that was low. Um, they rejected me and then probably eight months later called me and said, you know, if you're still interested, we'll sell it to you for that. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were able to get it at a really, really good price, you know, back in 2010. So we're just rolling out of the recession. So my timing, from an acquisition standpoint was really, really good. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I said, we had to tear down a lot of buildings. We, you know, we had to build a, 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 a barn, which we put a processor in. Um, and, you know, in those days it was a little bit more money than sense, if you will, like we went mm -hmm. all in on everything. Sure. Um, which, you know, many, many decisions I regret, you know, one is the direct marketing side of the business went really well quickly. And, um, you know, we outgrew that processor immediately. Um, so, you know, that, so anyway, that's how it started. So we started with a 75 acre farm. It actually had some pasture, maybe 20 or 30 acres. This is a funny part. You know, my business sense was my grass input costs are going to be the same. What's the most expensive meat? And, and so we thought, why good, right? We're going to go get why good. So we built this giant incredibly expensive Wagyu herd, bulls, cows, you know, Montana, Wyoming, we were finding Wagyu everywhere. Yeah. Um, um, bring them in, drop them into our pasture. And these poor animals look at me like, what <laughs> do you expect me to do here? Like yeah. I had no concept of genetics. Sure. Um, you know, they just wouldn't thrive. They were good moms. They had good babies, but they just, mm -hmm. they stayed skinny and tall and would not graze very well. So our pastures were kind of a mess. Sure. So, you know, I brought Joel, uh, Greg, Judy, you know, I met him at a conference and, you know, he came out and, um, you know, Greg, what's wrong here? And he's like, that leg, <laughs> why do you want to feed all that leg? Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and yeah, they're really funny. tall and very skinny yeah. back ends and, you yeah. know, they're grain animals. Like they're yeah. not, you know, they're not genetically designed. So we converted to South Poles, mm -hmm. been super happy with South Poles and, um, um, you know, and, you know, we know a lot more about grass genetics now yeah. than we did then. And, you know, and uh, so, you know, it's been a learning curve all the way. Yeah. So you mentioned, I think earlier that you had 300, 350 yearlings or stalkers that you bring in to finish out steers. Uh, did you start right away with that mindset or I think did you started with cows there? <laughs> Right, right. So we started with cows. Okay. And we were doing cow calf to finish. Yeah. And, you know, at, and this is only recent, just in the last two, three years, you know, we were just running out of forage. We sure. didn't have enough grass. You know, the math just, I didn't have it in my head properly. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a lot of peers in this part of the country, people raising cattle. So there's not a lot of, you know, a knowledge yeah. base to say, Chris, don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe people told me maybe they didn't. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, as you understand, right, I've got to feed the cow, I've got to feed her current calf, I've got to feed yeah. her last year's calf, and I'm not harvesting for almost three years. Yeah, you know, so I've got three times the number of animals that I can actually sell. 
eating my grass. So, you know, we sold all the cows and right now in this has been the last three years, we've been doing strictly, you know, we buy 500 cow, 500 pound calves in usually two or three bunches a year. Um, so we're bringing them in at slightly different ages. Um, and we run one, one large mob. Um, and, you know, we pull our finishers out of that and, you know, we just continue. We, we process three animals to four animals a week and, you know, we try and keep feeding the machine, yeah. you know, but again, the risk is cost of calves, the right genetics for our, our context. Um, mm-hmm. you know, those are all things that, that we're, we're struggling with now. Yeah. Yeah, right now, especially I imagine with the current market where it's at, but that's an interesting just observation that I think I talked with a lot of people, everybody wants that, that that tells a cool story when you can say conception to conception to consumption, it's a pretty, you know, the whole process, but, you know, even if the cow-calf model is profitable, which you can build a profitable cow-calf model, your issue there wasn't the profitability necessarily of the cows, but the limiting, it limited your production capacity because you're exactly. saying yeah you've got your cow calf and you've got retention for heifers for replacement heifers and stuff all grazing that are not actually saleable livestock and that's a lot of grass yeah and i'm selling groceries basically like i can't mm-hmm. run out so it's not like i yeah have halves every september so <laughs> yeah. order your half now and you can have it in september mm-hmm. um sure. you know people shop with us every week we deliver for free so people buy from us and, you know, on a one week, two week, three week, four, you know, there's different cycles of what people buy. Our average order size is about $68. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we'll sell a half every once in a while. But, you know, our main business is just folks normal consumption of meat. Yeah. And um, and so I can't run out. Right. Mm-hmm. I always have to and I have to schedule these dates you know, a year or more in advance, yeah. you know, so yeah. I can lock in my times. Mm-hmm. So I need that consistency of product, which I wasn't getting when, sure. you know, you know, with the cow calf. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of good insight into where you're at now, as far as your, your direct marketing. I mean, you're doing three to four head a week and you've got this constant supply chain that you're needing to feed. When you started, were you doing like that where you had available year round did you start with what's pretty common of just quarter halves holes in the fall when you've got fats and stuff or how did you start your marketing enterprise no and this may have been foolish on our part as well but you know we started straight into the meat business we didn't offer you know and our 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 pitch was you know hashtag make this normal right like this isn't exceptional you don't need to buy a freezer right you know this isn't off the grid like homesteading like this is just instead of shopping at Kroger, you know, mm-hmm. buy this, you know, get your toilet paper at Kroger and buy your meat from Tundra Pond Farm if you're within 70 miles of our farm. Yeah. And um, and so we had to have the meat right away. You know, we think it is kind of de-risking, you know, when people want to buy a quarter or a half, you know, I'll always be like, well, you know, what if your power goes out? <laughs> you know, that whole thing. And, and what about yeah. those cuts you don't want? And they're buried in the bottom of your freezer for four years mm-hmm. and you're throwing away, you know, and, and you yeah. know, wouldn't it be easier just since we deliver for free, there's no real cost advantage. Wouldn't it be easier just to buy what you need when you need it? That's a good, that's a good point right there too. Just cause I, I think I always talk to people, they say about how convenient it is to just be able to go down to the grocery store and what we say, we sell ace quarters halves and I'll say, you know, well, I think it's a whole lot more convenient to walk to the, the freezer, but because you yeah. offer shipping, you can 
resupply them, restock them as they see it going down in the freezer or something like that. You're offering that right. convenience level. Yeah, that's super right. convenient. And again, delivery, not not shipping, right? So we're just playing yes. with shipping, but yes. right. So this is we don't need dry ice. We don't need yeah. fancy packaging. We have these little red sheet bags. They're mm-hmm. slightly insulated. That sure. That um, you know, it's 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 really cost effective for the cons- consumer. It's yeah. easy for them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a behavior they're used to. Yeah. And um, you know, like I said, you know, there's a finite amount of people who are going to buy quarters, halves, and eights. Yeah. You know, but everybody's going to buy a pound of hamburger. Yeah. And did you start with delivery right from the start as well? We did. Yes. Yeah. Even so, did you just kind of accept that? you know, at the beginning, I likely won't be making money on my deliveries and that I'll need to accomplish some scale at some point to make this drive justifiable, but I have to offer it from the start. <laughs> yes. But we, you know, we did kind of, like the delivery wasn't the problem, right? I mean, I did the deliveries, my wife yeah. did deliveries, my partner, Amber did the deliveries, you know, we, um, um, you know, we didn't have an employee doing the deliveries. Now we have an employee and a half doing deliveries. Sure. Um, um, but you know, when we started, if it's, you know, we had a minimum order size of $50, mm, you know, mm-hmm. which isn't much. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we just, and we had a limited delivery area, so we weren't driving a hundred sure. miles Okay. and, you know, and again, we're focusing our marketing, you know, on as local as possible, right. It's yeah. better for me to deliver four miles away than it is 40 miles away. So yeah. How am I talking to those people and, you know, using social media and Google ads and, and, you know, search engine optimization and just all those e-commerce tricks, Sure. Um, you know, you can really laser in on who are you talking to and who do you want your customer to be? Yeah. Huh. That's, that's super smart. The, one of the things that had stressed me about deliveries that we didn't do it until we kind of upped our scale was like. I didn't want to drive all the way to the Twin Cities just for one pound of ground beef or something like that, or even $50, yeah. five pounds of ground beef or something <clears> like that. You, it seems like you have to have a car full to really justify that trip. But if you can. Right. With... But that break even might only be five, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you're doing it once a week, you know, and you get five orders and you deliver on Thursdays. Sure. You know, so maybe you're driving for four hours on Thursday, yeah. but, you know, you're making 400 bucks, you know. Yeah. So. yeah. No. That makes sense. Um, and you, the other thing you mentioned there was to offer this convenience to your customers is, you know, that they don't want to have this meat that they don't like continuing to build up in the freezers and sit there forever. Um, how do you manage that in your freezers when you're offering everything by the cut? Because I imagine that you have stuff that some customers might not like that builds up in your freezers as well. No, that's right. And, you know, you've got to, manage your pricing and you know right mm-hmm. so you know it's it's lower price for the unpopular things sure. higher price for the popular things um you know people are going to buy fillets i literally think they are price insensitive i i don't know yeah. what the upper limit is yeah. but yeah. you know you're right it starts to be a hundred dollars a pound so i could sell a shoulder roast for four dollars a pound mm-hmm. you know but you know you've got to be able to do that math and 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 cut it out and you know yeah. there's a lot of hamburger, you know, you talk about, you know, the complete cycle. Um, we actually own a hamburger stand as well in our small town, like a, a small drive-in that was like mm-hmm. abandoned, you know, mm-hmm. 50 years dying, you know, um, because we had this huge imbalance, yeah. again, my own ignorance, you know, where we were selling out of steaks, stockpiling hamburger and yeah. processing animals just to sell steaks and stockpiling hamburger. Yeah. 
And, and so this, this little hamburger stand went up on a sheriff's sale, this drive-in and we wound up going to the auction and nobody came. And so we bought this thing, but that really helped us balance out our hamburger demand. Now we have yeah. hamburger subscriptions and, you know, now we can sell most of our hamburger retail, but yeah. you know, that's, no, you know, we have awesome. 27 different kinds of pork sausage, I think, wow. you know, with bratwurst, you know, Hawaiian pineapple bratwurst <laughs> and buffalo, you yeah. know, blue cheese bratwurst and jalapeno popper bratwurst. And, you know, there's got to get creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that the hamburger stand is something we thought about, too, because that's such a good market for all the stuff you don't need. If you have extras, you just grind it and you can turn it into a what? I don't even know what the price per pound works out when a, when a finished hamburger. I mean, you're, you're sure. selling I mean, the undesirable as a premium, but still it's, it, it's a lot of work. I Absolutely. think my whole family would say we regret this decision. It oh, helped really? us at the time. No, I mean, it, it, it's good, but it's just a very restaurant food service. Sure. It's a very different business. I would much yeah. rather sell directly to the consumer and all my employees who work for our restaurants uh nothing yeah. personal <laughs> i still love you <laughs> yeah but, i'm uh, curious but, do you think that that has at all driven business to you guys having that customer facing piece of the business like that or i i don't really no okay. i um I, I think they're kind of two separate audiences sure you know okay. we we've put qr codes on our counter you know directing people to finder pond farm and nobody ever does it mm -hmm. um yeah. So, yeah, I thought there might be some cross-marketing there, but there, sure. there really isn't. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. All right. Um, hmm. So back to kind of your, your start there on the production side, you started with cow calf. Uh, you obviously in time realized that you needed to switch to more of the background or the, just the finishing end. Um, what other enterprises do you raise? Are you all beef? Do you have other meat products, any other non-meat products and, and yeah. where did well, they come into the play? When we started, you know, we went all in Joel Salatin, mm -hmm. pasture pigs, pasture chickens. Yeah. Um, we are out of pigs right now. We, um, we actually buy local pigs, um, and, uh, and process them, but we don't raise them anymore. And um, we still do chickens, a lot of chickens for us. Anyway, we do about 10,000 a year. Oh, that's um, plenty. <laughs> yeah, it's plenty. Um, Question we, on the um, chickens. Do you still do Joel Salatin's little uh, 12 by 12, whatever they're called? Uh, no, we don't. Um, okay. um, no, they work for a while, um, but they are, in fact, a lot of work. You know, yes. I, I um, you, know, uh, you know, Joel we've not been successful, like running interns. We haven't really tried. Yeah. Um, we have employees and, um, it's, it's just a lot of work. We use, um, um, hoop houses from hen gear. I don't know if you're familiar with them, kind of a spinoff of the seven sons farms up in there in Northern Indiana. I don't know if you know them or not. They yeah, also yeah. graze cart them on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. They're complained. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. The, the Hitsfields, phenomenal mm -hmm. family. Very, very helpful to us in the early days, but, yeah. uh, but we buy these hoop houses. So we have about five of those um, mm. that we pull forward with the tractor every day. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's easier. It's a lot more productive. It's, yeah. it's a lot better for the chickens um, and a lot better for the people. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's, I, I was just curious on that. It's funny. I, as I, I hold my mic up with books and I've got his pastured poultry yeah. profits book right here, holding my microphone up to keep it a little more at my level. But I, uh, we built our, we started with his little chicken tractors as well. And two of them for 200 or, you know, hundred birds a piece or whatever, and pulling that. And it was, 
he talks about how that is just such a good system. And that's one thing that I probably disagree pretty strongly with. And we went to the hoop house type style as well. And maybe if you do have an army of uh, interns, uh, then you can make it work. But it just did not seem like the most, it's a great way to start. It's very affordable. You can get in very cheaply, start at a small scale, but uh, not something that I wanted to do at scale by any means. So we still have a couple of Suskovich, you know, for like my my own personal consumption, you know, uh, my son on his property, he's got a couple of Suskoviches just for his own <laughs> own use. You know, they're at least you can stand up in and, and they're smaller. They only heard about hold maybe 20 birds. But um, for home use, you know, I, I think those are pretty nice design as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, cool. Sorry, I, I cut you off. I wanted to ask about the chicken production because I knew you were a fan of Joel and I didn't know if you still followed that that production. Muscle. I mean, I just read the book. I listened to it, you know, which I like yeah. audio um, yeah. and um, I like hearing his voice. He inspires me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so other than the houses and again, they worked for us for a while. But, you know, mm-hmm. we were getting up to, geez, I think at the, at the at the end of it, we maybe had 30 of them or something, you know, and uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, just it's it's a big chore you know hauling yeah. the water to each one individually yeah um we could run the the hoop houses we have buried water lines mm-hmm. um you know with plastic couplers mm-hmm. so we move our cattle water we have you know a coupler every 100 feet so same thing with the chickens you know we can just plug them in um yeah. you know when we move it we just have a long hose and we can just plug them in so we're not carrying buckets of water and dumping into the top of the hoop houses and things yeah. or the Salatin cages and things like that. Just a lot easier to scale. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And that, that's, that's why we've gone the route we do too. It, same thing. It just it makes life so much easier. What we can now raise in one batch in half an hour a day used to take us three batches of an hour a day and a whole lot more labor all summer long kind of thing. And so yep. made, it has made life a whole lot easier for sure. Now they are expensive, and that's one thing on the chicken side. And I don't know if you agree that we've found maybe is it seems like to really make it worth the time and the hassle, almost you have to scale that enterprise. And I would say 10,000 is, you know, a, a decent scale, but at it, when you were just doing a couple hundred, it probably wasn't even worth the hassle. Well, you know, it was proportional to our cattle. The thing is the consumer is used to buying all of their meat, right? Yeah. So when we don't have something like eggs are a big thing for us because, mm-hmm. you know, we still don't have enough eggs. So, you know, I can see empty carts where people have put stuff in their carts, but if there are no eggs, like if we don't have the inventory, they're going to abandon that cart, right? If I don't have sure. boneless skinless chicken breasts, they're not buying my hamburger, yeah. you know? So it, it all does kind of work together. That's and, a good um, point. you know, that's why we, even though we don't raise the pigs, we have to offer it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I want boneless skinless chicken breast, hamburger and bacon. You know, yeah, right. Yeah. And if yeah. I don't have the bacon, they're not going to, they're not going to complete their purchase. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. It's not even about the profit generated by the bacon. It's about the profit generated and the, the entire sale that would not have happened had you not had the bacon. Right. And again, this gets back to direct marketing, mm-hmm. you know, which is knowledge people need to have is, you know, you have to think about, customer acquisition costs and you have to think about lifetime value and profit per customer and profit mm-hmm. per basket. And yeah. maybe I do lose money on my Jamaican brats because we're selling them for $3 or something, but a, I have to get rid of the sausage somehow yeah. and B I will make it up because they're also going to buy fillets or, mm-hmm. you know, ribeyes or, yeah. you know, bacon. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Cool. 
Okay, so you you do chickens, you buy pork and beef. Uh, you're kind of carrying on with your your enterprise mix that you're at. Then I, when I cut you off, so let... no, that's it. And then um, okay. um, up until recently, um, we had an Airbnb house um, on the property. Uh, we literally just signed a lease to lease that full time mm-hmm. um, um, to somebody. Um, you know, the Airbnb business isn't as good as it used to be. I think there's a lot more competition sure. than when we started. It used to be phenomenal. You know, we had folks even last year came from Holland with their daughters and, you know, their United States trip was New York city and Tyner pond farm. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> but, um, awesome. you know, it, it used to rent every single weekend. Now it's like every third weekend. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that really is just a, a factor of competition. Sure. Um, so anyway, we found somebody who wanted to rent it full time and we were really happy to do that. Yeah. But it it definitely helped the business in the beginning, just as the processing helped the business in the beginning when we were small and we could work in there and had another friend who was a butcher. He'd come out of the grocery store business and, you know, he was doing it for us and, you know, um, it worked, it worked great. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, we're just, we've outgrown it and we outgrew it quickly. It's interesting, the Airbnb and short-term rental thing and stuff. I know people who are making a living off a couple of yurts on a couple acre property and stuff. And so it sounds like it can be quite successful, but uh, this is actually, I think you're the first person I've heard who's kind of said it's maybe not as good as it was. So that's interesting to hear. I know people are talking well, about being bust or whatever, but yeah. Well, I think um, there's, again, the yurts are a lot more competition. You know, there's hip camp, there's boondockers, there's, you know, there's, there's yeah. so many sites out there and so sure. many choices for people Mm-hmm. You know, our big appeal used to be sort of multi-generational families. They weren't there for the farm necessarily. Mm-hmm. They wanted a bigger house that, you know, they could have mm-hmm. their daughter lives in LA and another kid lives in New York. And yeah. we're from Georgia and Indiana happens to be centralized. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and we were the only choice in our area. And, um, and now there's dozens of choices. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I guess the next question that I've got for you or something I was curious about, you, you mentioned that you've got six different farms. You kind of expanded over the years. Uh, a few questions around that topic is one is, were those opportunities people coming to you? I mean, your land management is different. People hopefully saw and appreciated that. Were people coming to you with opportunities for land uh, or did you have to seek them out? It's a little bit of both, you know, um, you know, our first farm that we acquired was a lease, um, a mile away. We knew the family It was an older couple. It was one of these, uh, um, centennial farms been in the same family over a hundred years, 80 acres. And they liked the idea of what we were doing and we were paying them above market rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we've now taken that farm. That was literally 10 years ago. Um, we're coming up on our lease now and they're, okay. they're renegotiating hard. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. uh, but, um, uh, you know, we get all of our land certified organic. Um, mm-hmm. So we've created for them this organic property. We actually bought 40 acres of it last year from them. Um, uh, the family, the father passed away and the mother is going into nursing homes. So they wanted to fund that. Uh, we were lucky to get ahead of these interest rates. Now, yes. you know, we were in there Absolutely. at like 3%. So, Um, you know, it worked out to be a great deal. So we now own half of that property. Then there was a contiguous property on our main farm, which we called the 200 farm. All these roads out here are 100 South, 200 South, 300 South, 400 South. I don't know if I like that where you are, but yeah. So our 200 farm is our original farm. 
Okay. Um, and we were able to buy 40 acres next door. Um, we paid kind of a premium for that. Um, it was more of a real estate deal for the sellers. And, sure. um, but because we had paid so little for our original 75 acres, you know, we could rationalize it by, you know, pay too much for this, too little for that. It evens out to be fair. Sure. Um, um, yeah. And just, you know, mostly people have come to us, I guess, now that you mentioned it, I haven't thought about it that way, but hmm. you know, our most recent farm we bought three years ago was a retiring farmer, 157 acres. And he really wanted to, it to be doing what we're doing. And, um, yeah. and so, you know, we paid slightly below market, a lot below market because it was right before COVID. Sure. So, you know, yeah. compared to what market is today, yeah. um, um, you know, and again, we were able to finance that um, at a really low interest rate. Sure. And that's the nice thing about having a steady cash flow of being a direct consumer business is, yeah. is also it's pretty predictable what we're going to make every week, you know, yeah. every month. And, um, you know, we're growing, but, you know, we know and the bank knows what we can afford. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. It, it's also just cool. And that's why I wanted to ask, like, I think that's kind of, it just tells a cool story for people who want to go down this path that it can expand, not only just compounding on the benefits of your farm, but you hear all the time stories of people who, manage in a certain way and people come to them wanting them to manage their land in that way. And that, you know, that it can provide opportunities that sets you apart from your competitors and sets you apart from the neighbors. And so, um, it's well, and that's what, cool to hear. The, that's the message I want to get out to the consumer, right. Is like, yeah. like we don't need the government to do anything, you know, we, you know, um, yes. you know, we don't need philanthropic organizations to yeah. do anything, right. If, mm -hmm. if you want this environment, yeah just pay the farmer to do it. Yeah. Right. That's and, a, you know, amen. <laughs> that's what I know, talk to people all the time. Right? About if you is, buy my product, yeah. this is the environmental benefit you're going to get. This yeah. is the globalization benefit you're going to get. Whatever checkbox yeah. you want to check, you can mm -hmm. solve this. There's a great book that's out of print right now. For some reason, I was trying to find it to give as a gift to Alan Savory, actually mm -hmm. called in meat, we trust. And the author, um, and, can't remember her name but anyway she basically goes through the entire meat industry from the mayflower to teddy roosevelt to trains to mm. boxcars to chicago to the other white meat right and yeah. and her 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 the conclusion i came to was this has always been consumer driven like the the, the farmer is going to do what the consumer wants him to do right mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, we've come through this period of cheap meat is the most important criteria, right? And, and you know, yeah. so the consumer is spending on environmentalism on one side mm -hmm. and consuming cheap meat on the other side. You know, yeah. again, I tell people, come to our farm. Like, you'll walk through here and you'll barely be able to walk because the grass is so thick. And you're kicking <laughs> up thousands and thousands of bugs. And, yeah. you know, I took a video the other day because the birds were so loud you could barely hear yourself think. And, you yeah. know, and I, it was like, I haven't heard birds this loud since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, mm -hmm. this is the environment you want. It's created yeah. by these grazing ruminants. Yeah. The only way that this is going to happen is if you buy the meat from those grazing ruminants. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, a hundred percent. I have that conversation with people all the time. I, you know, it's funny how often you'll hear people, say, you know, I voted for such and such because of their environmental, they, they vote for things because of environmental things, but they're shopping at, you know, they're eating their meat from McDonald's and stuff. And it's like, yeah. you can make or a even, way or they think impact. they're doing good by shopping at Whole Foods or eating yeah. fish. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, that's that. Those are the people who are at least a, maybe a step further than uh, than the McDonald's folks. But yeah, yeah it, I mean, your vote, it, your consumer dollar is a much more powerful vote than any ballot uh, will ever have. As far exactly. as exactly, you can buy the environment you want. Just yes. pay the farmer yeah. Yeah. to do what you want them to yeah. do. Make it and so profitable that anyone who laughs at grass finished beef would be a fool to not get into the market. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Free market is a beautiful thing, but people need to actually pay for what they believe in. But I guess it is what it is. We'll see. Well, I mean, again, it's just, you know, we have a tough fight because we're fighting against these global corporations and they're, they, they have the lobbyists. They're in the ears of the politicians and it's hard for us to be heard. At the political level, it's impossible for us to be heard. But at the consumer level, we now have the power to direct market. And so if I can influence I have 16,000 people on my mailing list, right? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't sell 16,000 people every week or, you know, maybe those yeah. people, you know, in a year, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's just yeah. me, yeah. you know, if you got 16,000 people and mm-hmm. hundred other farmers got 16,000 people, yeah. then more farmers would rise up and they'd, ha- you know, and it's, it is just like the music business. A friend of mine told me years ago that, you know, pre-internet, you know, well, nowadays, a musician can make a living on 10,000 fans. Like that's mm-hmm. a very finite number. If I have 10,000 fans, I can sell three CDs a year. I get enough people coming to my concert that I can make like a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. You know, and yeah. it's the same thing with farmers, right? How yeah. many customers do you need spending how much money per week or per month or per year mm-hmm. lifetime value um, to make your, make your business work. Yeah. Uh, and, and that gets you free of the commodity world. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it, but I, uh, I I wonder, and I don't know, I've not thought this through at all. It's just kind of coming in my mind here. So I might sound like an idiot as I say it, but I think of, is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever? And, you know, we're coming, you know, there's you know, food, shelter and all this stuff. And we're at a point in time now where in the United States, anyway, we're very fortunate, very blessed to have so much at our fingertips that now the next level of like, things people are start thinking more intentionally about things beyond themselves. I think there's, you know, there's people out there that say you can't worry about what's outside of the outside and what's going on with the environment, what's going on with the climate when you don't even know how you're going to feed your family. But in the U S we're pretty well safe. Most people, uh, there's definitely issues in this country, but people in very relatively recent amount of time have actually started thinking about food and the food systems and how that impacts the environment and climate. And we're only just beginning this. And so as a new generation, every new generation that comes in is more focused on this, it'll be interesting to see what actually does happen. And large corporations, you know, it's good and bad, but large corporations will follow the money. And so they'll go down this route to, to a point to as, as close as they can get to claim it without having to uh, maybe fully go into it. Right. It is something that has to be small. And, you know, you talk about the environment and that's a really important constituency, but you also have on the other side, you know, folks that care about globalization and, you know, (laughs) patriotism is a word I hear a lot about, right. And, Mm. you know, supporting each other and our communities and, and, you know, and anti-corporate, right. Just, you know, why am I giving money to drug companies? Why am I giving money to, you know, and these, you know, Michael Pollan is super eloquent on all of this, yeah. um, you know, 
we've allowed everyone to serve us, right? Yeah. Um, these corporations are happy to say, we will serve you. Don't you worry about this. Don't cook. Don't, yeah. you know, don't yeah. worry about where it came from, right? It's going to yeah. be cheap and you can buy a lot of it. And, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, more and more people for lots of different reasons, you know, and, you know, you look at these deliveries we do and, and I'm always very surprised at the kind of houses we deliver to. And mm -hmm. most of these are not environmental folks, right? They're, they may be, you know, they're not animal welfare people necessarily. Um, you know, I mean, they're couches and washing machines on their front porch and they're still paying, you know, $8.99 for a pound of hamburger because something yeah. is making them say this is worth it. Yeah. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons. And that's what you have to discover when you're direct marketing is what are the reasons that people are, you know, yeah. yeah, we want this grass, right? We want the mm -hmm. soil and this environment, and and that's our primary context is you know this soil biology. Yeah. So what do we have to do to do that? And that gets into our management, it gets into our customers, it gets into you know the type of animals we have and our drug mm -hmm. policies, and you know all of that yeah. feeds into we think soil life is a good thing. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, that's a whole rabbit hole. We could go down for another hour or more. But, uh, <laughs> uh, the other question I had kind of on this land-based thing is an issue that we face. I think you, me, largely people in maybe east of the Mississippi, more of the farm country as opposed to the ranch country is this non-contiguous issue that we have to deal with where there's 40s, 80s, 120s, 160s here, there and stuff, as opposed to a large contiguous several thousand acre ranch. It's really difficult for us to make manage it as easily uh, as a crop farmer who can just fold up a planter and then move on to the next one, fold it back out and keep going. How have you managed this? I think you said six different farms, uh, not right. contiguous. Uh, I mean, with grazing livestock to balance labor efficiency and also intentional management, how do you, how do you do that? Well, we have to trailer, right? So okay. we go to a farm um, and we graze it for however long it'll last five, six weeks, usually, um, and then, you know, we have two pretty, you know, ask my two farmers and they'll say my son and we have a, an ex-Marine. Um, so those are our two farmers and, mm -hmm. you know, that move takes six, seven hours a day. So it's one day every six weeks that basically that day is devoted to getting the animals to the next farm. Mm -hmm. And then they'll last on that farm roughly six weeks and, and then they move to the next farm and, um, so that's how we rotate them. And it's not a great six hours, um, you know, but, you know, we've done the math and, and, yeah. and with the farmers, you know, and, and, uh, you know, okay, we can buy a 35 foot trailer for a hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, I heard your pickup truck math the other day, how many calves do I have to have to buy a pickup truck? Yeah. So we can get F3, you know, we can get F350s to haul yeah. that giant trailer. So now we're into $175,000, you know, to save what two hours every six weeks, right? That doesn't make any sense, mm. you know. So mm -hmm. it's not going to make it time go away. It, we still have to move them, but you know, it's yeah. just it's it's a cost, you know. But it, it it's not that bad. It's one hard day every six weeks. Yeah. Well, I I I count it up and I forget all the time. I think we have passed around eight different sites, and ours yeah. are spread. We've got four that are four different sites that are ten miles to the west about two miles apart from each other, but 10 miles from the home farm. Then we've got three sites about two miles apart from each other at home. And then we've got one 13 miles away. 
yours are all within a mile. Do you think, and I'm, this is where having a podcast is nice because I can ask questions that are related to me. Uh, do, do you think it's worth moving cattle in my situation or is there because you're within a mile or two of your sites that it makes sense? Or? Well, I would certainly try it, right? You know, we used to run different herds and hmm. and that became a bigger management challenge, right? Because yeah. A, we had these multiple smaller herds. Um, they were, you know, the environment was different. They were being managed differently slightly, you know, mm-hmm. the people, you know, and, you know, I'm a big Alan Savory. You need the big, as big a herd as possible. You want mm-hmm. that animal impact. Yeah. So, you know, um, keeping them there created another set of problems, you know, mm-hmm. when we were running separate herds. Sure. And um, so, as I said, this, you know, your day might be more than six hours to move them. Yeah. But, now that farm that they're off gets a ton of rest, right? Which you need. So you, yeah. you know, you want to give it that animal impact mm-hmm. and knock everything down and then go away for as long as you possibly can. Yeah. And that's sure. worked out really well for us from a forage productivity standpoint. Sure. Um, so again, we're afraid of labor, right? But mm-hmm. honestly, from an overall management and productivity standpoint, that, that extra labor is worth it. I think, but again, you'll have to try it. You load them up and drive them and say, Oh my God, it's going to take me three days, you know, to do this. Um, And one advantage I would say that you have over us is we've got 200 plus cow calf pairs. And I would guess moving pairs is more challenging than yearlings. Um, But I would have to think so. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but still you're probably right that it should be tried. And what we've kind of done is where we've got these three different farms that are all within a mile or two of each other, but they're on three locations is where we've kind of managed groups we've got a group over there that moves between those farms a group over here that moves between farms but uh so we've still got multiple groups but less than if we put one on every farm but i was curious to hear your perspective on that that with six weeks uh where you're moving one group between all these farms and for six weeks on a farm what's your average rest period and by the time you're getting to some of those later in the summer farms for the first time, those forages are going to be pretty mature and pretty rank, I would guess. Are they still grazing as the quality an issue with gains on these? These are gain, they're, they're cattle that are putting on weight. You're, you're finishing. That's a different right, exactly. kind of mindset. So. And, and I don't want to say we're forage agnostic, um, <laughs> but it hasn't been as big a problem as I've been led to believe it might be, if you yeah. will. Um you know, this summer we are, we're kind of grazing in order of um, farm maturity. So like right, right now we're on our newest farm. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's very stemmy. It, it's going to be a much faster move through that farm. Is this the first time grazing this grass in August 15th? It is the second time. Okay. So the first, first year we, so we came into a soybean field um, yeah. that fall we planted a cover crop that includes like lots of turnips and radishes and, you know, things like that. The next year we planted a pasture mix. Um, we grazed it once last year. We'll graze it once this year, but I think we'll come back to it in the winter this year. Okay. So first time um, this year though, is I guess what I meant. This is the first time in the middle this of August. Is the first this time the first this year. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, you know, it takes a long time to get these pastures recovered mm-hmm. to be any kind of productive, you know? So, yeah. So right now we're running them through and all that stem though is going on the ground, like flat on the ground. Like I did a temperature YouTube the other day, just 
<laughs> you know, I think it was 86 degrees outside, yeah. stuck it under that litter and it was 73 degrees. Yeah. Um, so having that litter on the ground mm-hmm. is still really, really helpful to us, For even sure. though there might not be that much forage in it. Yeah. Um, and we'll just run through that farm faster. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we do some clipping. Um, we're trying to minimize that. We're, we're clipping one farm right now, you know, just finished this week, I think, um, about 120 acres. That's going to be our winter farm. Um, we've been very fortunate this year with moisture, the rain, you know, I don't know what your conditions are like here or there, but, um, <laughs> we've, yeah, we've, we've had, we, you know, I knock on wood cause every time I say it, I'm like, yeah. it won't rain again for three months, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, going into the fall, we're in really, really good shape. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, but it, it, you know, again, it's holistic management, you know, yeah. Jim, who's my son. Um, you know, he's in charge of the cattle and, you know, he has a grazing plan and he knows where am I going to be on November 16th? Like, I don't know necessarily, but he will tell me, you know, give or take, barring any emergency, you know, you know, we practice it. You know, we, we do yeah. what Alan tells us to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I refer to that book bi-weekly at least we have copies of holistic management in every farm every office every truck not every truck but yeah but um you know it's it's our reference cool yeah well that's that's interesting because like you said it's not as bad as you had been led to believe i think that is a common maybe thing that i know i've heard it my family my everybody tells you 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 let it get rank it goes poor quality cattle don't do well on it, smothers out everything beneath it, but you're not seeing that your cattle are doing well. They're finding some, maybe some new growth to balance with the old stuff and trampling the rest and, and everything is good. No, I'm doing a video. I did a video the other day showing just a grazing move on YouTube and, you know, I have an audience of about 40 people. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm not logging like into, a... I'm going to subscribe <laughs> right now. So Tyner Pond no. Farms. Tyner Pond Farm, one, one word. I'm okay. Tyner Pond Farmer is the name of okay. the YouTube. Perfect. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but, you know, I showed the ground very stemmy afterwards. And, you know, a lot of people are asking me, well, I'd like to see that in two weeks, you know. So I've been tracking it and I'm going to just put together a little collage of how quickly this ground recovered. Yeah. And it's because I put this, this blanket down on top of it mm-hmm. that kept the ground cool and kept the moisture in. Yeah. And all that stem, I mean, it's an impenetrable from the top down, um, it, it's a blanket, right? It's mm-hmm. thick, but you know, the benefits to the ground from having that thick blanket of stems, you know, you can see it. I'll show you, know, you'll see it next week in the video, but yeah, you know, it's, it's two weeks and you could, you would forage it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to for another 10 or 12 weeks probably, but, yeah. um, but, um, wow. but yeah, it, it, it just bounces right back. Mm-hmm. That's, that's cool. That's and that's exciting. the thing, right? It's not just the, the feed quality isn't the only criteria. Mm-hmm. Soil health is our main criteria, right? So yeah. whether it's best for the cattle or not, what's best for the soil is kind yeah. of our context. Yeah. And it's so what and it turns out it's fine for the cattle. That well, that's the thing, <laughs> is that it turns out it's fine. So that that's good, but you definitely have to make sure that you're getting the gains that you need and getting the finish that you need on your cattle. And and you are. That's that's important right. to me. Right. It's not like and I think a lot of people say, I'm not willing to sacrifice the gains. I'm not willing to sacrifice that because it is giving up some productivity and profitability, probably on the cattle potentially. 
Um, they're not willing to do well, that in the name of soil health, but you're saying that you haven't had to, you're feeling you're doing an adequate job with the cattle management and uh, an excellent job with the soil management. Right. And you know, there's, there's, there's the whole idea of compensatory gain, right? Hmm. So maybe for this yes. two weeks in this period, yeah. you know, this group is going to, I mean, I'm going to use air quotes and say suffer. Nobody's really suffering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I know that when I put them on this pasture, mm. you know, they're going to gain that back in a week. Like you know, yeah. it's going to, you know, sure. it's going to bounce back. And we do move off because we process three or four. We do move off a group of finishers, like maybe eight to 12, you know, to a better paddock two sure. weeks before we move them. So we have okay. kind of a loading area yeah. where we load up to go. We take our animals in every Monday. So, okay. you know, we'll move them over and get them on some really good grass for a week before sure. we move them out. That makes sense. Awesome. Fascinating. I want to get out there and see all this now, but at least I've got your YouTube channel. I'd love channel, to see so it. Well, when it. you, <laughs> when you deliver those cows to me. Uh... Yes. Perfect. <laughs> That'll work. Uh, cool. Uh, let's see. I think that was all the questions of the land base that I had. Um, we're already over an hour here. So I'll just maybe ask, what have I missed? What are things that you think are worth sharing from your story or topics you want, want to address here? Uh, or, or we can you know, I, have another I, I conversation guess, if they're big ones. <laughs> well, you know, again, there's so much to this. Um, yeah. uh, you know, we've committed our life to it, but I think really it's just, you know, the message is the consumer. I know you don't have a big consumer audience, but yeah, you know, your consumer dollars have the power to change the world. Um, yeah. And, and it, it starts very small and incrementally just mm -hmm. support your local farmer buy local. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't like globalization, buy local. If you don't like what's mm -hmm. happening in the environment, buy local. You know, yeah. I can't do anything about coal mines or power plants in China. But what I can do is I can take care of these acres. And yeah. if the consumer cares about that and wants these acres to be cared for this way, um, they've got to buy the food. Yeah. So a question, I'm sure you're not near where uh, uh, where Will not Will Winters, uh, Will Harris, Harris. White Oak Pastures yet. But can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the impact you've had on your community with this keeping dollars local and different things? Well, I mean, our little operation here that didn't exist 10 years ago or so, um, you know, we have six full-time employees, um, wow. give health benefits. Um, we pay very, very good wages. Like these are middle-class jobs. Um, um, you know, so there's just that then yeah. ancillary to that. Um, we buy non-GMO grain. We don't grow any grain. Um, no. So, you know, we buy that from a farmer who's making more money than he would selling commodity GMO grain. Yeah. So we're paying a premium for that. So that influences him and his family. Yeah. Um, we buy hay. So, you know, we have criteria about our hay. Um, we pay a premium for hay. You know, we're trying to minimize our hay. We're getting very, very close to year round mm -hmm. grazing. Yeah. Um, but, um, so that influences that impacts that economically. Mm -hmm. Um, we have two restaurants in our small town, two. you know, which creates another, you know, 40, 50 people, you know, including wait staff and folks, cooks and, and things like that. But, um, yeah. you know, so, you know, all in all, you know, I'm not patting anybody on the back here, but it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's real, right? The fact is that if you keep these dollars circulating, good things will happen. More restaurants have opened in our town, you know, more people have seen Now we weren't the first, you know, we had a brewery open before we 
open ours. I think we got the mug, which is our hamburger stand. Then a brewery came. Then we opened this gastro pub. Now we have an Italian restaurant. Now we have kind of a big family, like community concert place called the depot. Um, this is your town, not you, right? No, this is our town, right? Yeah. I'm just saying these are not yeah. my businesses. Yeah. You know, our, our theater has, you know, and I'm not, I'm yeah. not giving all of, you know, None of, yeah, I'm not taking any credit for no. any of this, except I'm a firm believer that a rising tide brings up all ships. If you've ever watched yeah. the show Hometown, you know, and you think about yeah. Laurel, Mississippi, you know, five years ago before this show came there and started rehabbing a couple little houses. And now mm -hmm. this place is a tourist destination. You know, yeah. it's a, um, um, so, you know, just just start small. And it starts with somebody buying that first hamburger from a local farmer. Yeah. On purpose. And I know you, you said you're not patting yourself on the back, but I will. That's incredible. <laughs> That's really inspiring. I, I love those stories. Those are the coolest things. I grew up in crop country like you're at, uh, being told you need a thousand acres per family full time to farm. And you are, right. I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred acres roughly or something like that are employing how many families are living off of that? Eight? Well, just in our farm, which is about 600 total acres probably about 400 to 600 or 500 grazing acres yeah um, um and that is you know yeah i'd say five families yeah that's incredible just on the farm and that doesn't count the restaurant yeah yeah and then because of the farm you've been able to in partnership with and because of the farm you've been able to expand jobs in the town and i loved when i had i forget if it was blake or blaine i had them both on but one of the two we talked about uh, Hitsfields of uh, Seven Sons Farms. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about their kind of perspective of, you know, where a lot of people are saying, how can we do more acres with fewer people? They're saying, how can we get more people on these acres? And I right. love that idea exactly. of, you know, getting more bodies out on the land. It's not an efficiency gain. It doesn't, we're not trying to <clears throat> maximize acres per person, although, you know, there definitely has to be considered, you know, labors of efficiency. You're not just trying to throw money away but it's you're creating jobs and creating wealth in your community because of this I mean, my I son that none of your neighbors are with row crops my son jim is 29 just turned 29 um so you know he was 20-ish when we started this right 1918 yeah. you know he was playing football he wasn't <laughs> like we weren't farmers he wasn't yeah. a farmer it was nowhere on his radar and <laughs> yeah um you know he moved away went to school out west was in washington state wound up getting a job while he was in school on a similar farm to ours and came home as a full-time farmer, you know, making a middle-class life with health insurance. And, yeah. you know, his quality of Incredible. life is very, very high. And, you know, Joel talks about this a lot in fields of farmer, especially is like, you know, why aren't guidance counselors telling people to go into farming? Why is everyone trying to run from farming? Because mm -hmm. um, it's not a great life. It's not, you know, happy, <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, Joel's farmers are happy. Our farmers are happy. Greg Judy's farmers are happy. That's a good, good way to wrap it up. I think um, I will ask you the last two questions I ask everybody, I guess the first is, and you mentioned uh, several throughout here, um, but what resource recommendations would you have for, for the listeners? Yeah, I'm going to go with some different ones. And um, okay. a lot of my reading has to do with, um, I, I need to educate myself to help me educate my consumer. Holistic management by far is like, just should be a reference that you have all the time. But um, I wanna talk about a book I read called Running Out. It's called Running Out in Search of Water on the High Plains by a young man named Lucas Bessier, B-E-S-S-I-R-E. -S -S -E. And 
it's basically a memoir because he's returning home to Western Kansas. And this is modern times. And it talks about the Olagala Reservoir and how this was the, the, the dust bowl. And, you know, it was it was over for them until they found the Olagala and they could learn how to pump and pivot irrigation. And just now that's running out. So it was really fascinating and educational to me so mm-hmm. much to the point I drove out there to see it. You know, I wanted to like look at wow. it. Yeah. Um, but so that's called running out. And then a, another book that I think is a good companion um, by Judith D. Swartz is uh, water in plain sight. And Judith also wrote a good book called cows can save the planet, but water in plain sight is really, I learned a lot about photosynthesis and transpiration and what makes rain and what makes water and, you know, droughts are man-made, you know, which is Alan Savory 101 kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um, I learned a lot. And then I just read um, uh, The Insect Crisis, um, the Oliver insect Millman, crisis? The Insect Crisis. And it really just the collapse of insects, right? Yeah. And like how this is actually a really, really big deal. And, you know, we're trying to insecticide everything, again, reductive, yeah. you know, and, um, and, and what it means to devastate the insect population. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And then, uh, and the last one um, is I just read this: "The Devil's Element" um, by Dan Egan, and it's all about phosphorus. And just if you're concerned about food security and how dependent our food is on imported phosphorus, yeah. um, and not only that, but the the implications for water pollution and things like that from phosphorus. But hmm. you know, it's it's really a double-edged sword because a it's a really insecure resource, yeah. um, like there's not enough of it. And sure. it's coming from places that are insecure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what does that mean to the entire food system? It's yeah. actually kind of terrifying. And then the other aspect of, you know, phosphorus pollution, which is, yeah. you know, you know, so it doesn't matter which side of the coin you're on mm-hmm. food security, globalization, or, or environmentalist, like phosphorus is something based on this book that we all need to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, great recommendations. I don't know that I've heard of any of those well, holistic management I have obviously, but the, the other four, I don't think I've heard of. So those are awesome. Thank you for that. Um, then last question is just where can people find you or reach out if they want to learn more? Yeah. Tiner Pond Farm. Uh, my email is chris at farmersmarket.com. Uh, um, Tiner Pond Farmer is my YouTube, but uh, you know, we're trying to be prolific on Facebook and Insta and, you know, my son is, I'm trying to learn how to do reels and, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, a lot of that, but impressive, but yeah, tinerpondfarm.com. We should hopefully be easy to find T Y N E R. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This was awesome. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Really appreciate the opportunity. The herd quitter podcast is brought to you by Faro cattle company. whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.